Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP. Recording live from FYP Studios East and West West. Transmitting across the internet, this is episode 291 of Registry Matters. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you? Good. Good evening. Very, very well, Andy. Thank you. Larry, where are you? Are you there? I'm not here. I'm letting the uh, sidekick take over. (laughs) And I have an art. Okay. I see. There we go. Now I have the right screen pulled up. Um, Well, Larry, since you are still driving that bus, do me a favor. What are we doing this evening? Well, we have a few questions from listeners and one from a reader of our lovely transcript service to talk about, to go through. And then we have some articles, if time permits. And the big topic is going to be Adam Walsh Act and the regulations. And to show that we have disagreement respectfully on registry matters, you'll hear two divergent views on that tonight. Well, very well. Very well. Shall we just dive right in and go for it? Let's do it. All right. Well, this first question comes from Raul, and it says, I hope to be released on parole this year, and I plan to contact you about getting the Texas PFR registration statute struck down. If the court struck down Roe versus Wade, I know they will find this registration unconstitutional as well. The problem, as I see, is that the attorneys are afraid to challenge registration because the fear of public backlash. I have no fear. So before Larry answers, uh, do you have, uh, do you think that the court will strike it down? And I got to press a button there. Well, I don't really think the Supreme Court is going to strike down. But, Raul, you're correct. The Supreme Court did overturn Roe versus Wade. But that's not a valid comparison. The Supreme Court's action in and of itself does not prohibit a single abortion from taking place. And as a result of the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court's action simply reverted to the states for them to decide the issue. And the Supreme Court decided there is no constitutional right to an abortion. But on the other hand, there's no prohibition against having one either. The states are free to permit them, and several have actually strengthened the right uh, beyond what Roe previously provided. But the writer suggests that someday a future Supreme Court will prohibit states from having registration schemes. If that is in fact what he's suggesting, I think that's what he is, that is a bit disconnected from reality because registration schemes are not facially unconstitutional. And we have an attorney here that can explain what facial unconstitutionality means. But in my limited understanding of 20 plus years in this business, it means there would be no set of circumstances where such an act would be constitutional. There are plenty of circumstances for registration to be constitutional. You could have a very benign registry that would impose no disabilities or restraints, could do nothing to hurt the person. It could be a very benign registry. It would be constitutional. And there are dozens of registration schemes that operate that without, without running afoul of the Constitution. So each registration scheme is going to have to be examined and challenged on its merits. If they were to overturn Smith versus Doe, that would not end registration. 
it would just mean that if there was a new case come along and it was distinguished sufficiently from the Smith versus Doe case, they would say, well, gee, you've gone too far. You can't do these things. But they wouldn't say you can never register another citizen again. They just wouldn't do that. Chance, what say you? What say me? I say that this may be more of a political question than a legal one, depending on who's sitting in the court. I'm talking about the U.S. Supreme Court at any given time. And you know, what the paradigm says at that time, we're, we're, just not, we're just not there yet. That's what I say. In the future, we may be there, and Larry may be absolutely right. There may be a very limited and benign scheme. But until there's a paradigm shift in thinking on this issue and perhaps some movement on the court as far as players are concerned, uh, it's just not, not going to happen. Would you do me a favor and would you dig into that you just said that it might be more of a political question than a legal question? Why do you think of it that way? Well, I think that, you know, in terms of um, who's sitting on that court, and what their background and political agenda is plays into a lot of decisions they make, especially now, especially this last, say, 20 years. Of, you know, I mean, just look at the trends. And so, and not only, not just that, but who's sitting there, what their backgrounds are, what they did before, you know, who placed them in the position to make the, you know, to make that step up. There's, there's a lot of considerations here that have nothing to do with whether or not uh, this is legitimate, cruel, or unusual, wrong, overbearing, or what. And, that's, and, and that, to me, is more of a political scale than, than, say, a legislative one. That's interesting. Larry, please have something to say in return. Well, it sounds like chances say saying something that I've said through the years. Who we elect to the presidency and to the U.S. Senate don't to separate those two branches of government because they're both involved in federal judicial appointments and they have a critical role to play. And we basically had a seat hijacked in 2016 when, when the uh, late Justice Scalia passed away in February of 2016. And the political process decided that they were, they invented a rule that they, they cut out a whole cloth that a president in their final year in office doesn't get to make Supreme Court appointments. That was a political decision made by Mitch McConnell, who was and it still is in the key leadership position. He happened to be the majority at that time, and they decided they were not going to give the president the opportunity to make an appointment. That was disgraceful, and they did it. And not to say the Democratic Party has never done anything. They they put up roadblocks to appointments at lower courts, at appellate level and district court level, when they were in power, but they had never done that at the Supreme Court level. And I remind people about the appointment of Justice John Paul Stevens. We had an elected, unelected president in 1975 who had been, who had ascended to the presidency from being appointed to the vice presidency named Gerald Ford. And we had an opening on the U.S. Supreme Court. And we had a Democrat Party in charge at that time. And the Democrat Party seated Mr. Stevens at Mr. Ford's uh, request. And they could have easily applied that rule because Mr. Ford had never been elected to the vice presidency, let alone the presidency, but yet he was allowed that appointment. We had the same thing when Speaker Carl Albert could have assumed acting presidency role in 1973 when Mr. Nixon appointed Mr. Ford to assume the vice president role 
everybody saw the handwriting on the wall. I was alive in 73. We saw that, uh, that likely the Nixon presidency would not run full term if they had held up the confirmation of the nomination of Vice President Ford, we would never have had a Ford presidency. And Carl Albert, Speaker of the House, would become acting president. These were unprecedented actions that were taken in 2016 for a sitting president. And that we ended up with a, a, what should have been a presidential appointment by uh, President Obama being deferred to President Trump. What I'm taking away from your the two statements provided is that our work is more so on the front side of things and not on the back side. Of course, we're trying to defend ourselves if a prosecution of some sort comes our way, but the work needs to be done on the front side of preventing things from getting, as we like to say here, Larry, worser. Correct. And we've got to be careful who we vote for. And we disconnect, a lot of the public disconnects from the importance of voting. When they sat out in 2016 and said, I don't like that woman. You remember that? I do recall something along those lines. She doesn't well, inspire me was the words. Yes, yes. And uh, it didn't expire. And, and, and I just don't like her. You know, I said, why don't you like her? You don't know her personally. I just don't like her. <laughs> so it's like, well, you know, these things have consequences. The court now is in a position with young justices that are going to be there for a very long time. And even if some of the older justices get out of the picture, it's going to take some time from from the culture that's developed over the last 15, 20 years to change. Justice Roberts is now a moderate. And in fact, if those who listen to the Dan Bongino show, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett is her name. Yes. They were they were accusing her on Bongino show of being liberals. Now, can you imagine <laughs> Justice John Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett being liberals? But that's what Bongino said because they voted in favor of allowing the administration to move remove the wire that the governor of Texas and the attorney general of Texas had have erected on the border. Uh, and they said that, that that converted them to liberals. Can you imagine? <laughs> so. I seriously don't know Robert's politics that well, but I, I followed a little bit of the hearings of uh, Barrett, and she's definitely not what I would call a liberal. Well, neither is Roberts. Roberts is a very conservative man. He has high principles. He tries to protect the institution of the court and the integrity of the court. And he's a gentleman, but he's by no means a liberal. I mean, he's <laughs> nothing close. Anything look further, at, Chance? Before we go, or Larry, go ahead. Look at well, look at how he look at how he rules on things related to business and commerce. He's diehard for business. It, it, business can do no wrong. But go ahead, Chance. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just you know I just wanted to say that this is a really good discussion because you know it, if you really listen closely, you're you're hearing exactly exactly the reasons why uh, I say what I say and. If you want to just condense it down to a nutshell, that's really the legally realistic way of looking at it. Legal realism is there right on all fours. And, uh, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate the discussion on this. Well, all right. This one came in, Larry, and I just put it up here just because it looks kind of fun in that uh, someone posted on YouTube. and I just saw it just now. It says criminal records are publicly available and having a registry that's easily accessible for the wider public is a great convenience. It's hypocritical to advocate for the removal of the registry, but not the criminal records themselves, which clearly shows your bias and sympathy towards the worst scumbags on earth. Wow, that's kind of hateful. 
Yeah, it's kind of kind of entertaining as well because, first of all, the person's disconnected from reality, whoever you are. What we have advocated for on Registry Matters podcast is we believe that the United States should seek to follow the example of European nations where people do have some right at some point to be forgotten and have their past go away. So, so that's a disconnection, number one. And number two, if the registry were only just public records being available, that would be one thing I would tend to agree. I've said that over and over again, so clearly it's not a regular listener. If all the person had to do was register one time and go on with their life, and they had a picture made at the time they were convicted, and they went on about their life, and they didn't have any obligations to inform law enforcement on every 90 days or every 30 days or every 60 days, if they didn't have all these things that would put them in jail for failing to update their internet uh, usernames and passwords and all the things that they do and restrictions on where they can live and work, if all the person was doing was being registered and a photograph made on the day of their conviction, I would agree with you that that would not be unconstitutional. And we would be hypocritical scumbags if we said that public records like that. But that's not what registration is. So whoever you are, you have no idea what is entailed in registration because it's a lot more than just having a public record of criminal conviction being exposed. Like, uh, Chance, tell me on your criminal conviction, what information is in there? It probably varies by state, but what is in there that you're aware of? Well, the most pernicious thing that's in there is what you were convicted of. So that's, you know, that's, that in itself is the penal code section. Uh, often with an explanation of what it is, uh, typically the most terrible <laughs> explanation you can find is typically the short explanation as to what that charge is, if there is one. Uh, but typically there's dates of arrest. Uh, there's a description of what the person was arrested for. And on top of which, uh, if there was any kind of disposition or conviction, what a person was convicted for. And by the time you have all that information down, even the simplest arrest, even the even if it's for next to nothing, looks like a big deal. And that really, really messes up a person's background when it comes to seeking employment or housing or other things. So uh, it's kind of nasty. But by comparison, the registry side, just the public information website side, could list name, address, telephone number, girlfriends, parents, car license plates, boat registration numbers, ATV registration numbers. And then you end up with, on top of the registry side of it, the level of kind of restrictions that you could end up depending on the state. And when you were convicted and that whole morass of things that go with it could have living restrictions, could have work restrictions, could have your actual employment restrictions to go with it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not just you were convicted of the most heinous thing and you look like John, uh, Jack the Ripper, John the Ripper, Jack the Ripper, whichever one that is. Jack. It's all the other crap that goes on it with the registry that includes your updated photo and addresses. And so like Larry had just said, the internet identifiers, they're practically watching your presence on the internet as you move about. Yeah. So it really is, it really is much more pernicious than just, you know, a criminal background record. And, you know, Larry's really correct. I mean, Europe has it down. The right to be forgotten is such an important right. And I'm, I'm just, it's just mind boggling that, you know, Europe's ahead of us in this way. This is, this is really where the rubber meets the road, the right to be forgotten.
I just want to make sure that I, I add that there's an individual in chat in Louisiana. He says, what's driving me crazy in Louisiana is the burden shifting where the registrant bears the cost of public notification. Last time, four and a half years ago, it was $700 for postcards and then $500 for newspaper ads. So that person has to pay for the notification that he lives in that particular neighborhood, that region, whatever, to send out self-doxing information, so to speak. So, that's, well, that's, that's crazy. Uh, I would suggest that you start voting differently in Louisiana. It's not going to change if you keep voting the same way. Uh, and mm. one person always says, well, there's nothing I can do. But it, it starts with one step. But back to this question here, about this comment, I should say, the, if the registry were static, meaning that you did it on the day of conviction, and they said, congratulations, you're on the registry. And you went on with your life with no disabilities or restraints, no obligations, that person would be correct. They would be totally correct that it would be merely a dissemination of, of static information. But that's not what it is. It's dynamic information that's continuously changing that has to be updated under the threat of severe penalties, including habitual offender enhancement in many of our states. A person can go to, they could have a registration obligation that was from, for a very low level felony. And they can violate the registry reg, registration of the many plethora of things that you can be out of compliance on. And you can go to prison for sometimes a lifetime. So your original conviction was a five-year maximum low-level felony. And then your habitual offender, because they didn't exempt registration as our state did, our, our uh, registration is not a part of our habitual sentencing scheme. You can get convicted of failure to register 45 times here. And it's not a part, it doesn't make you a habitual offender. But in many of our states, it does. So you're facing potential life term uh, uh, in prison in Texas for an administrative violation. I understand. Yeah, yeah the threat of prosecution side. I, I always forget to mention that one. And you frequently bring it up that they're just just like the quote unquote website in Florida. There's no threat of prosecution of you not quote unquote following the rules there if you're just quote unquote on the website, whereas if oh. you're on the registry, like actively registering, they can come nab you. I have had such trouble. I mean, for six years, I've tried to tell people I would prefer not to be on a website. But if that's all it is, there are no obligations imposed on you now. If you believe the Kool-Aid drinkers that believe that, that the website causes you to have all these disabilities and restraints, that's okay. I can't change that. But you have nothing to fear in terms of a prosecution if all it is is you're on the website. You may have a projectile come through your window if you have an address that's on the website that's still current. But most of the time, when you've been registered in another state, that address is no longer current because when you moved out of state, the new state uh, doesn't continuously communicate with the old state. So it'll say living out of state in New Mexico. And if you're no longer on the New Mexico website, they don't have a current address. So it's hard to send a projectile through your window, but you have no disabilities restraints when you've been deregistered because you're on a website. And we're going to have this conversation probably for another six years, and people will try to make sure I understand that being on the website is equivalent to being registered, and we're, we're never going to convince some people that it isn't. Well, all right. I think then, short of any articles... Oh, wait, no, no, I have this other question, this other question. So this came from uh, the Connections website for Narsal, like the social media website. And it is um, the uh, proverbial question of a friend for a friend of a friend that lives in North Carolina. And this individual is on federal supervised release. A lot of this I had to kind of like dig out because like the question to begin with was a little bit just like, hey, this person has this issue. 
But uh, so he has to be on federal supervised release. And his handler says that he can't use the Internet. Full ban, as I understand it. And I realize it's pretty scant information. But I thought it was interesting that the full ban is in place where Packingham was decided on and not some far, far, far away place. And if the full ban is an issue, and that would be the question that I have to ask for the two of you, is uh, that should this be an issue for someone that's on a federal supervised release that they have a full ban on the Internet? And if so, what steps would this person, uh, what steps would a person with this condition uh, set by their handlers take to move forward? Who's going first? Me? Why don't oh, you go yeah, first, Larry? Yeah, we'll, we'll let, we'll let uh, Larry go first. I'd like to hear what Larry has to say about this. <laughs> Larry's going to say they'll do it until they're told to stop. Well, that, that is, I, w- I would say that. But in terms of a full internet ban, that's very problematic. If you read the uh, uh, Packingham decision, although it's dicta, and Chance can explain dicta better than I can, but there's a lot of dicta in Packingham. And it suggests strongly that they're concerned about that, uh, particularly for a person who's no longer under supervision. Well, this person is under supervision, which gives them greater latitude, but not for a total ban, in my opinion, unless it's been individually tailored to the needs of that offender. You could have a person, theoretically, that their offense pattern below, before they got to the stage of life of being on supervised release, that it might merit a near total ban. But as the jurisprudence has developed over the years around the country, total bans are frowned upon because they're they're adequate means to monitor people technologically that I cannot begin to explain with software, hardware, or combination of the two. And probation is encouraged to give at least limited access to individuals who are under active supervision. But a total ban, I would need to know the circumstances of what the underlying offense was, how long ago it was, and if this was a uniquely tailored, narrowly tailored, or if this is something that that PO or that probation district is doing universally. If it's narrowly tailored and they say, you know, we don't generally do that, but in these, in this rare case, we've done it and here's why. I'd like to see that. If they just said, well, everybody in this probation district has that, I'd be very concerned and I would be looking at, is this a good candidate for a challenge if I had a law license in that jurisdiction? Chance? And, uh, and I think that's the correct analysis, actually, because, um, you know, you're on parole or probation and, you know, the conditions have to reasonably relate uh, to what they are. And uh, in this particular question, we just don't have enough information to really say, you know, what, what this is really about and nothing to really analyze or compare it to. So I think that's right. What is dicta? Explain that in a, in a, yes, in a, a way that, uh, that uh, I mean, I could try, but I'd rather hear it from a lawyer. Well, you know, dicta is just, is just a, a lot of things thrown into the case that really don't have any relevance as far as the rationale or the reason for the holding or the holding itself, what the case says. It's just a, a whole lot of, you know, maybe backstory or it may be things that the court thinks is important to say, but actually has no relevance to... Uh, what the court's going to do or why the court's going to do it. And, and uh, that's what a lot of in Smith versus Doe, there's a lot of dicta in there and people, people uh, misunderstand when the court is pontificating and when they're actually uh, issuing a holding and, and there's, there's dicta in Smith versus Doe. 
Um, although one of the big ones is more, we're going to hijack this program because I, I think that the uh, frightening high recidivism, that's, we're going to do a program on that. Chance, uh, we're going to do a program on frightening high recidivism. We'll have a discussion about that because that'll hijack the rest of this program if I go down that path. I'd like that. That'd be a fun one. Shall we move along then? Let's do Moving it. Moving along. All right. I'm going to channel my inner John Donvan of a program called Open to Debate. And uh, on this program, we have two debaters who are going to discuss the question about whether you need to follow SORNA regulations, which really isn't presented very well. But the idea here is that we have one participant who's going to tell you something about a warm bucket of spit. And the other participant is going to tell you why it's the letter of the law and you have to... Uh, Make sure that you follow everything perfectly and clearly. So without that, I will introduce you to our first speaker. Larry, do you mind going first and give us your opening arguments on why you think it's a warm bucket of spit? Sure, I can I can go first. I'll tell you that in my opinion, and I follow the political angle of why the Adam Walsh Act was passed. And I dig very deep below the surface. Very few people do that and they don't understand the backstory of what Congress was attempting to fix and the limitations that they realized that they faced. So when they passed the Adam Walsh Act in 2006, they were trying to fix a problem that was legitimate. There were uh, 100,000 or so people who had been registered under the various state registry schemes who had moved across jurisdictional boundaries. And the state they had moved from had absolutely no incentive to want to track them anymore because their their investigation revealed they're no longer here in Alabama. And if you're Alabama police law enforcement, you would much prefer the person be offending out in California than Alabama. But California didn't know that they were there because they hadn't checked in, so they were missing. So the biggest thing they were trying to cure was the 100,000 unaccounted for registrants who had gone off the grid. And they passed this new series of of a enhancement to try to close the gaps and get the states to bring their registries up to a more uniformity and more uh, in alignment that a person would be less likely to disappear. And if they did disappear, they needed to have a consequence for disappearing. So they put a provision in there, which I can never cite numbers, but they put a provision in there for interstate travel. For anybody who travels in interstate commerce has a duty to register so they were trying to stop people from traveling from state to state and not registering. And remember, they, there was no incentive for Alabama to spend any of their dollars to track the person down. So they needed a federal enforcement mechanism. So they looked at the interstate flight to avoid prosecution. From a political angle, they said, hmm, well, we go after state fugitives who have left Alabama and gone to California, and we charge them with interstate flight to avoid prosecution. So hmm, that will work. And they put that provision in there to capture those who travel, who are actively registered in Alabama and who do not present themselves to California. Well, as the, all bureaucracies move about, they've discovered that, that well, gee, we can use our, our manpower to go out and hunt down the ones who had, had traveled prior to the enactment. And there was a great deal of litigation. And they said they could not, uh, the courts ruled that they could not go back and uh, 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 prosecute those because they had traveled, and the, the language of it is anyone who travels, and they, they took that to be forward travel. So, so that wiped out uh, convictions and prosecutions. But the problem they were trying to fix was to get the missing sex offenders. 
but they recognized they didn't have the ability to create a federal registry. They just didn't. Maybe narrowly, they could have created a federal registry for those who had committed federal sex offenses. So they created the monetary enticement to get com compliance by giving the states reward and penalties. They gave them early compliance money to, to, for those who achieved su substantial compliance. And then there's the theoretical 10% reduction. They used the power of the purse. They clearly recognized that they couldn't create a federal registry because when you're convicted in a state, there's what's called a jurisdictional hook. And the federal government, the federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. So therefore, there's no jurisdictional hook to take a person who's been convicted in California, who's never left California, and to force them to register if California doesn't want to register them. So that's what my position has been, is, and will remain. But there are people who look at the iteration of the, reg of the regulations that have come out, and we'll get into it in another segment so I can get uh, hand this microphone to Chance, but there's the reasons why they, they put the, those, the, the language they have in there it says what they say it says, but it doesn't mean what it says. And I can get in there and, and explain to you why it doesn't mean what it says, and I can give you hard data to tell you why it's foolish to believe the way that people are interpreting it. Yeah, I mean, they're overreacting to an imaginary boogeyman, but I'll shut up and let, let Chance take over. Chance, go ahead, please. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm, I think maybe what the first thing I'll do here is talk about, you know, what are what are SORNA and the SORNA regulations, so that you know, we're all on this, we're all on the same page here, uh, and that is that they are the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act. Okay, so that's what's known as SORNA. It's a federal law that imposes registration requirements upon all persons convicted of sex offense, of a sex offense, even if they were convicted under state law, and even if they live in a state that doesn't follow SORNA's requirements. And this is kind of like what Larry just said. It's this is this is kind of like a stopgap type thing, um, like law, like state law registration requirements. SORNA and the regulations impose affirmative obligations to report specified information to law enforcement. Some of the requirements come from SORNA itself, which is a federal statute, while others are added by the DOJ's new regulations, which just came out a couple of years ago. Uh, neither SORNA nor the new regulations impose. Affirmative rest restrictions like residency, presence, or employment restrictions. So the second thing to understand is to whom the regulations apply. SORNA requirements are independent of state law. And this is something Larry just spoke about a moment ago. Uh, the SORNA requirements apply to you even if your state is not a SORNA state. Uh, initially, Larry said that uh, there were monetary incentives other um, additional things to get states to comply with. Um, again, I'll repeat, the SORNA requirements apply to you even if your state is not a SORNA state. And I'm going to point out a case. It's called U.S. v. Feltz. It's 674 F3rd 599 603. It's a 2012 case. And some of the um, language from it goes something like this. The duty to register in a state registry is independent of a state's degree of implementation of SORNA. And then it goes on to speak about USB Paul. And it says, Paul fails to appreciate the duality of the sex offender registration systems. Yes, the sex offender's SORNA obligations are coextensive with corresponding state registration requirements, but 
SORNA imposes duties on all sex offenders, irrespective of what they may be obliged to do under state law. SORNA requirements apply to you, even if you meet the de- if if you meet the definition of sex offender under SORNA, which means an individual who was convicted of a sex offense as defined in 34 USC section 209.11 paragraph 5. I want to note that a current requirement to register is not part of the definition. If you were relieved of the duty to register under your state's law, you were probably still subject to the SORNA requirements because you meet the definition sex offender, but or, but if you have no written or other notice of the SORNA requirements because the state did not inform you of them, you otherwise didn't learn of them, the regulations confirm that there is no liability because SORNA violations must be knowing. Also, if you cannot comply with SORNA because the state or local law enforcement or because state or local law enforcement refuses to register you, this is an affirmative defense, meaning you are not liable, but you must try and report the information to local law enforcement first. I, I'm, you know, and, and this is really important to know. The imposition of SORNA requirements on persons, regardless of whether state law requires them to register, is discussed throughout the final regulations. And these are the new regulations. Okay, these are things that just came out a couple of years ago. And I'm talking about 86 Federal Rule 69868. And I'm just going to read you some of the language. Uh, consider a situation of this nature in which SORNA requires a sex offender to register, but the law of the state in which he resides does not, like we were speaking about above. Notwithstanding the absence of a parallel state law, the registration authorities in the state may be willing to register the sex offender because federal law, for example, SORNA, requires him to register. If the state registration authorities are willing to register the sex offender, he's not relieved of the duty to to register merely because the state law does not track the federal law registration requirement. That's found in 86 FR 69866. So naturally then, next question becomes, if you have a current obligation to register under state law, must you attempt to comply with the SORNA requirements? Well, yeah, most definitely if your conviction is under federal law, for instance, military convictions, and federal court convictions, District of Columbia law, Indian tribal law, or the law of a U.S. territory or possession. But probably, if you have a state law conviction, although there is some ambiguity regarding whether you have to comply before you move into interstate commerce. So, when do you have notice of a duty to comply with SORNA? The regulations state that the normal procedure is is written notice to you, which you signed, followed by process in which you report the required information, and that's at 86 FR 69868. If you don't receive written notice, you are probably not required to comply, but the regulations also say that you can receive notice from other sources, and I'll say that again. You can receive notice from other sources, and we don't know what those could be, and that's at 86 FR 69868. So, then how long does SORNA require you to comply or attempt to comply? Well, that depends on your SORNA tier. And this is where it gets a little confusing. Tier 1 is 15 years unless you have a clean record. And then it becomes 10. This is the, these are the federal classifications under SORNA. Tier 2, 25 years. Tier 3, lifetime, except for some juvenile offenders for whom it's 25 years. 
So your SORNA, your SORNA tier requirement may be something that you need formal notice of before becoming obligated to follow the SORNA requirements. SORNA tier is not necessarily the same as your state tier. For example, in California, CP felony possession and distribution are, are tier three. But SORNA classifies CP possession as tier one and CP distribution as tier two. Many contact offenses in lower tiers in some states are up on tier three in SORNA. But on the bright side, it appears that if you've registered for the length of time required by your SORNA tier, you no longer need to report information required by SORNA, although the regulations do not expressly say that. For instance, 86 FR 69871. It says expiration of the SORNA registration, uh, registration period accordingly does not violate the need for sex offenders to check with registration jurisdictions whether they remain subject to registration requirements under the jurisdictional laws. Chance, can you read that again? Let me read that again. Yeah, go ahead. Expiration of the SORNA registration period accordingly does not obviate the need for sex offenders to check with registration jurisdictions whether they remain subject to registration requirements under the jurisdictional laws. It's kind of confusing, right? Uh, Without a doubt. Are you a first-time listener of Registry Matters? Well, then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today. Just search for Registry Matters through your favorite podcast app. Hit the subscribe button and you're off to the races. You can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there, too. Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Registry Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F-Y-P. I want to ask a question about, and, and feel free to chime in either Chance or Larry. You're talking about a federal rule, but this isn't, this isn't House bill, Senate bill that got signed by a president. Is that, am I reading that correct? You are reading that correct. And that is, so and how, that is, that's part of the issue. These, there, there is SORNA legislation, which occurred uh, before the new rules came out. The new rules were provided by the attorney general. Okay. Those are the new regulations and, and the new regulations, as you might determine by what I'm saying here are very confusing and kind of vague. Larry, do you have anything to add to that before Chance goes on? Well, in terms of that uh, last one that you highlighted that he read, uh, that is, in fact, correct. Uh, the uh, The federal government can't release you from a state's registration obligation. So if Mississippi considers you to be a lifetime because they've tiered everything, classified everything as a lifetime, it doesn't make a darn bit of difference that under the federal SORNA guidelines, that you would have been had a, either a 15 or 10 year obligation at, at the federal level. So that I agree with, but we'll get into where I disagree. But that mm-hmm. is very confusing at that, in terms of that language for, for people to understand because it almost looks as though they're trying to have it both ways. But like I say, I, I have my own theory why they do, do how, why they've done what they've done. Well, then continue, Chance, on what are the consequences for noncompliance? Well, that, that's, that's a, a big subject here. 
But the federal crime for failing to register appears at 18 U.S.C. Section 2250. And the short form is, upon conviction, a court can sentence an offender to a fine and or up to 10 years in prison. And that is a hefty price to pay. So it comes down to then uh, where we intersect, where Larry and I intersect in this, in this discussion, which is, do I need to attempt to comply? Now, most, if not all, competent practitioners recommend that you do. Because of the ambiguity of receiving notice, like from other sources, and the ability to establish an affirmative defense under the new regulations. The regulations seem to assume that someone cannot prove impossibility to comply without first trying to do so. And you want to see pages 6980 or see page 69887 of the new rules, which discusses the affirmative affirmative defense of uh, applying after the sex attempt or the sex offender attempts to comply with the requirements by contacting the local sheriff's office. Uh, they, meaning the above-mentioned practitioners, would suggest that you ask your local jurisdiction how they want you to comply with federal SORNA and ask them for an email address to which you can send this information. That way, you will have documented your attempt to comply and established your affirmative defense against potential future criminal liability. What say you, Larry? Well, uh, well what I say is that uh, looking at this, uh, Andy and I, at least I know, I'm data-driven. And I look at the data. The Alan Walsh Act, SORNA, as you're referring to it, passed in 2006. And the language has been there since 2006. There's a section that says obligations on the on the offender and the section that uh, clearly delineates obligations on the uh, uh, jurisdiction. And as it was originally passed in 2006, they were the impetus was trying to get the jurisdictions to upgrade their registration processes. But here we sit 18 years later, and in 18 years' time, a lot of people have been discharged from registration across the country through either a, a simple timeout, maybe in Vermont, where they don't have to petition. But also, there's tens of thousands of people have been removed. 18 years, not a soul has been prosecuted who has had their registration expire or have been discharged. So, and I can't even begin to tell you how many thousands of people that would have been, not a single individual has been prosecuted. And, but with my connections on the National Defense Lawyers Listserv, the State Defense Lawyers Listserv, I'm fairly confident with our NARSL network that we would have found somebody who had been prosecuted and there is not a single person in 18 years. So I look at that data point and also look at since this injunction was issued on these regulations two years ago, that injunction is only valid in the boundaries of California. And that would mean that in 49 other states with 49 other U.S. attorneys offices staffed up fully, for the most part, not a soul has been prosecuted in any of the 49 states that have been removed from registration obligations. So to me, it's a hypothetical boogeyman because no one is trying to prosecute people who have timed out. But there is an agenda for this in terms of what they're doing. But it's not to ramp up federal prosecutions for people who have been relieved of registration obligations. What the sinister motivation for this is to try to create such a bleak confused amount of confusion and uneducated part-time lawmakers, which are primarily the rule around this country, not in California, they have a full-time paid legislature with with significant staff resources, but around the country, these part-time legislators 
are being given a way to become substantially compliant by just simply adding one line to their registration obligations, including how they define a sex offender. They can define a sex offender to include a person who would be defined as a sex offender under federal SORNA. So like, for example, in Georgia, you could add one line to the Georgia removable process and you could say that a person can be removed with the following exceptions. And you could say a person who would be otherwise defined as a sex offender under federal SORNA. And that's the big part of the agenda here is trying to convolute the issue so much that where people, the states either legislatively or administratively can say, well, I can't let you off of this list because it would violate that big old bad federal government. But there's nobody anywhere trying to prosecute anybody who's been removed from registration. So people who, if you, if you want to spend your time worrying about this and trying to check in with registration offices, if you want to do that, that's fine. But if you've got a document, a letter saying that you've been removed from registration and you've been removed by a court order or you've been termed out by the state, I wouldn't spend another waking moment thinking about what's going to happen within the boundaries of that state I got removed in. Now, the whole analysis changes if you leave those, if you leave that jurisdiction, because that was the very thing that the federal government was trying to plug, was the people moving from across jurisdictional boundaries. So as this line that we focused on above talked about that you might not have, even though you might have been, uh, you, uh, how, did, how was it worded about where you might have a, a, a state obligation? If you move from uh, uh, Vermont to Mississippi, well, Mississippi would cover you because you're still alive, or Alabama would still cover you because you're still alive. In my opinion, they're trying to capture those people. And since you can't show me any evidence to the contrary, they're, try they're trying to capture the people that have turned out or been removed. I think it's still an imaginary boogeyman. Okay. Do you want to pile on top of that, Chance? No, I, I think that, you know, in, in practical effect, uh, Larry's got a very good point. Uh, and he's, he, he does understand, uh, you know, the basis for this, which is interstate movement. And I think, that, I think that, you know, in a practical sense, we have not heard of anybody being prosecuted that's been removed. Uh, there are, uh, you know, I think 94 district courts. <laughs> we, we, I don't know where you would get the information from. Uh, but something tells me that that's probably correct because if people were being prosecuted for it, you'd certainly hear it in, in forums, attorneys' forums, and uh, we'd certainly understand uh, that it was being applied somewhere at some time. Uh, we just don't have that. Um, but again, the one thing that I know, would add is that uh -huh. absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. I would just want to make sure that that is stated. Just no, because we and, don't and, know doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it makes it more likely. Well, that's true. But, you know, that's true. Two points to take away from here. One, uh, the boogeyman is not a straw man. It, it does exist. You know, the practical effect of it, well, you know, so far, you know, nothing, nothing to report. Um, and uh, the application of it to be determined in the future. Well, what I would say, Chance, is I hope this litigation with the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is the, the impetus for this discussion, 
I hope this litigation is successful, but what would be sad would be if it doesn't go the way that we hope it goes. All of a sudden, you have the largest state in the country with an adverse decision, which would, of course, Pacific Legal would take that up to the Ninth Circuit. And then you have the largest geographic circuit with the largest amount of concentrated population. You would all of a sudden have case law that would be adverse for the largest population centers of the whole United States. When you take the total population of the Ninth Circuit, it dwarfs every other circuit. And all of a sudden, we would have bad case law. So I hope people have taken that into consideration. In my view, this question did not need to be asked until there's some kind of credible threat of a prosecution. Now, I don't think they asked the question for the reason people think they asked the question for. I think they were looking for a train to ride to go after the non-delegation clause in the Constitution. They're trying to challenge that, just like these death penalty proposals around the country to, to apply the death penalty to people convicted of certain sex offenses. This is not about the death penalty. I mean, it is about the death penalty, but it's not so much about sex offenders per se. It's that's the boogeyman that they're choosing to use to try to test the limits of the death penalty. They believe, the conservatives and the people who are strong supporters of the death penalty, they believe that this court is going to be more sympathetic to the application of the death penalty than previous courts have been. And so they might be able to roll back some of the advances, particularly for the, the, the uh, prohibition against executing people who committed crimes as a juvenile. So this is, this is a, a grander scheme, and I think that's what's going on here with this specific legal uh, foundation. I think this is just simply a vehicle to ride, and it's a dangerous vehicle to ride because it may not come out the way just like the people who wanted to have the Supreme Court rule on same-sex marriage. They didn't like the ruling. We may not like the, how this comes out. I would rather have waited until we needed to, to have this question answered, and right now we don't need it answered. And, and you know, Larry, you're kind of right here. Uh, it is, I see it the same way. It's, 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 it is the vehicle. Uh, it's about non-delegation. Uh, but look, even if that's successful, um, those rules are still out there and they, and, and they can be legislated and they can come back to haunt us in a very, very big way. So, you know, whether it happens one way or the other, there's always that risk, you know, the timing of it, how long it would take, whether or not the players were present to do it, who knows? But, um, you know, at this point, you know, the trains left the station. So we just, mm-hmm. it, it, again, it's, it's, it's something to see in the future. I have a, I have a couple questions. Were, were these hooks in effect prior to the change to this new SORNA regulation? I'm thinking that they were, they just made them more. Are you, are you referring to the uh, new rules? Yes, I'm referring to the new rules, but compared to the old rules that if, if you were released from registration, you still had a federal obligation to make sure that you were in compliance. I don't know the right way to word that. Larry, help me out, please. Yes, I think I understand your question. And yes, if you look at the legislation and you can, you can look at it in a way, you can come up with how the regulations uh, uh, flowed from it because you can interpret that that these uh, obligations exist on the offender. I don't interpret it that way because I understand what they were trying to do. They were trying to get the states to impose these obligations on the offenders. And they were trying to give the states the mechanism to to want to do it with the money, I should say, not the mechanism. They were trying to give them the financial incentive to impose these obligations. They didn't want a person leaving Mississippi where you had a lifetime obligation to go to Vermont to have a 10-year obligation. So they were trying to get Vermont's registry to look more like Mississippi's registry. And, and you, you have a hard time 
making Vermont have a lifetime registry for everybody. So they came up with this three-tiered system that's categorical rather than risk-based. And that's what they were trying to accomplish. And you can read exactly from the Adam Walsh Act what is there, but that's not what it was trying to do. The fear is, since we always give law enforcement more resources than they need, if you start looking at it that way and say, well, gee, I can interpret that way, you could, and you could have some prosecutions going forward. But the first thing I'm gonna argue if that happens is I'm gonna argue jurisdiction. There's not the jurisdictional hook. If I got convicted in Georgia and I never left Georgia and you try to prosecute me when I've been relieved from registration in Georgia, the first thing I'm gonna say is there's no jurisdiction for this prosecution at the federal level. And I'm gonna say, you can declare all you want to. Congress can declare that the earth is flat and you're gonna fall off a little outside town, but that doesn't make it so. And so the fact that you're proclaiming federal jurisdiction doesn't make it so. And so some bureaucrats saying we've got federal jurisdiction does not translate to actual federal jurisdiction. This is complicated. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, you, you know, you know, Andy, though, you know, one thing they did, uh, you know, with the new rules and regulations is rather than put the onus on the states, because all the states, you know, some states went along with it. There was a pushback from the majority of the states. They put it on the individual. Sure. Okay. And and that is, is is really crossed the line here in my mind, the constitutional line. They put it on the individual, okay, to to know and do these things. And to me, that's the most pernicious part of this. And so it kind of bypasses all the jurisdictional arguments and everything because it then becomes on you, not on the state, not on the federal government, on you. And then they started telling you how you can you know build up these you know this affirmative defense and stuff. I mean, I've never seen anything like this ever, you know? So, but you know, the thing that really worries me is even if, even if the uh, Pacific uh, legal foundation is victorious, I'm worried that, you know, federal legislators are going to say, Oh, okay, let's pick this up and let's, and, 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 and let's put it into effect. Let's legislate it. And that, you know, this would be awful. Well, would they then still have the hook to do it though? Cause I mean, the way that I understand it from the non-legal mind is that the federal government cannot push laws down into the states without some kind of buy-in from the states, I suppose you could say. The federal laws are different than state laws. They just can't, like, violate constitutional rights, something along those lines. You're, you're the, 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 yes, they can legislate. The, the issue is that then becomes not a delegation of powers issue. It becomes whether or not the law in and of itself is constitutional. And, that, and that's a whole different discussion. Sure. Larry? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, that you can legislate to you're blue in the face. But just because you legislate, it's, it starts with a favorable presumption that it's constitutional. But this is where conservative courts, if they were intellectually honest, would theoretically push back because they're always concerned about the over-encroaching reach of the federal government. Magically, I think they would abandon that when it comes to this issue, but there's just not a federal jurisdiction. When you regulate trucking, there's a federal argument for jurisdiction because of the crossing of boundaries. You know, the truck doesn't just stop at the Georgia line and, and, and they don't load it into another tr truck uh, on the border of Georgia. To, I mean, so you, you can claim a jurisdictional hook, but just because you say you have jurisdiction doesn't make it so. And if the federal government wants to create a separate registry for all the people that they've that Georgia has removed that have never left Georgia, 
arguably they can they can appropriate the funds. Congress can do that, and they de declare that they've got a federal registry. But that doesn't mean the, the first time that the U.S. attorney files a complaint in the Northern District of Georgia that that is going to be a successful prosecution, because I'm going to argue there's no jurisdiction for this. There's not a federal issue involved here. There's not a basis for you claiming jurisdiction over whether our state wants to have a sex offender registry. It's just it, Georgia could abolish their registry tomorrow, and there wouldn't be anything the federal government could do about it other than withhold funds. So jurisdiction is always going to be in the back of my mind in terms of state convictions for the person never has left the state. I'm with you. Chance, we're kind of winding down now to move on to the next section. Okay. Very well. Very good. So... Larry, do you want to do this one article from California? Yeah, we could do one. That was a, That's going to be a fun one. We can put the other three for next week if, if we don't have anything better. But yeah, this one for California is going to give me a chance to pontificate. And is this the one that says, no, these are still some other notes. All right. Um, well, I don't really have any notes on this one, though. So here's California an prison. Cal California prison. I can explain it once you, once yeah. you set it up. Yep. And this comes from Cal Matters. Hey, they stole our name, Larry. Instead of it being registry, they called it Cal. Um, a Cal as California closes prisons, the cost of locking someone up hits a new record of, holy crap, 132000 bucks per person? Almost 133 I thought, like, the, the southern states are cheap at, like, 50000 bucks. Holy moly. So, well, the reason why I put this in here, because we got the connection with chance in california and he can explain why things are expensive out there but what i took from this is something that i've said through the years on the podcast is reducing the prison population doesn't have a corresponding reduction in the cost of corrections and the reason why i knew that is because we in new mexico we took a dramatic turn 20 25 years ago in terms of our juvenile system and we downsized our juvenile justice system dramatically in terms of how many people we locked up. But the cost of the juvenile system went through the roof. And I said, hmm, what happened here? Well, if you don't close the institutions altogether and mothball them, which there's cost involved in doing that, you don't really save a whole lot of money because the person's three squares a day that they're eating doesn't really cost that much. The building still has to be air conditioned. Staff positions still have to be filled and everything's running along. But if you look at the at the graphs of charts in this article over the last decade the inmate population in california has dropped by 25 percent but the cost of running the prisons despite that drop continues to go up and up and up the average cost per inmate has really gone up so those who say well if we just cut the number of prisoners no it doesn't work that way you've got to close shut down a mothball institution and that's tough to do in a political climate because prisons typically are located and built in more rural areas because that's the big employer. And these California prisons are paying some good money. If you look at that article, these, these corrections officers are making some, what I consider very good money. And uh, so Chance, what, what do you say? How come you can't get your cost of prison and, uh, prisons under control, even though you've got uh, <laughs> one fourth fewer inmates out there? Well, yeah, no, that's not happening because, you know, crime is always on the up and up uh, typically. But um, I see your point. I'm, I'm looking at this article. And even though it says, you know, the, the uh, criminal justice analyst says that the actual cost uh, to house a prisoner is like $15,000 a year. 
And I understand that cost because yeah, I know I know what prisons and jails do. I mean, as far as you know, the the stuff that they supply the prisoners with, which are second, thirds, fourth, fifths, and whatever. Okay, but you know, think about this. It's a business. And what she found there was what you said, which is compensation for employees at the corrections department increased 43% between 2010, 2019. These guys are getting paid 110 to 158,000 dollars. Uh, per year. Uh, and you look at their state contracts, which included bonuses and things like that, goes to the point that California prisons are businesses, not necessarily prisons in the, in the uh, traditional sense. And when you've got businesses and you've got local rural communities um, and you've got negotiations every year and, you know, you've got to keep people inside those prisons watching, you're going to have to pay. You're going to have to pay them. And, 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 you know, look at inflation, look at the rest of uh, the costs, and you say, no wonder. So it costs another 100000 bucks to watch per person over the 15000 bucks a year? Well, the 15000 <laughs> it appears to be in this article, is, what, is, is what, it, what the cost of housing a prisoner. That's housing. Okay. Does that you know, not what, include what the, food? That's, that's necessities, you know, what they wear, sure. what they eat. That type of thing. Which, which is pennies, uh, you know, I, I think they probably spend something of a dollar or two per day per person. So I don't know if that uh, would include, that's not that much money in that 15,000, whether it is or isn't included, that's 300 bucks a year. Well, if you've ever been to a California prison, which I have, you know, the prisoners, the inmates there live at, live at poverty level. Of course. But the employees, you know, the correctional department that, you know, look, at the, I, I never, I wasn't aware of this, but you know, when you say from 110,000 to 158,000, that's pretty good money. And Not in California, these, you're living in a prisons shack. Are, yeah, these prisons are staffed. And, yeah. you know, so it, it makes perfect sense. Well, this is where people who don't understand the political angle as well. This is where your conservative and liberal ideology, they, they overlap and combine nicely. The conservatives really appreciate having the prisons in their communities because it's an economic driver. You've got good jobs and good economic activity in a in a uh, community like uh, that might not have a whole lot going for it. And that's not unique in California. That's in Arkansas, New Mexico, or wherever. But you have prison uh, workers tend to be unionized. You know, in the public sector, you have more union. So you got the Democratic Party wanting to be kind to the unions because that's workers for their campaigns. And you got the Republicans wanting to be nice to the prisoners because they believe in corrections and they believe in, you know, it's nice to have these people with these cherry jobs that they have in their communities. So this is where you have a hard time overcoming what, what would seem like a no-brainer. You'd say, well, a liberal state like California, they, they should be able to cut the corrections department budget. No, it's not quite that easy because cutting, being soft on crime is not a big seller even among progressives, but you have the union workforce that loves the benefits and the wages and you've got the conservative part of the state where they're law and order anyway and they love having these jobs in their community so you you would have a lot of support for the corrections department even a state like california right right anything else in here before we go we're right at an hour now i think we can kick over to next week and chance is going to come back and what was it we said we're going to talk about i've already had a senior moment that i said well Oh, you know what? I'm having a senior moment as well. I've got well, more stuff to follow up on from our uh, discussion of the uh, 
tiered registry in California. Just a quick question when we come back next time, but uh, what is okay, it we're well, going to discuss? Uh, our transcriptionist will pick it up and he'll send me a note because whatever it was I said, I've already forgotten. Absolutely. Okay. Well, fantastic. Thank you both very much for joining again this week. Very lively discussion about why it is or isn't a warm bucket of spit. That should be the title of the episode, perhaps, Larry. Is it a warm bucket of spit? I think that sounds great. <laughs> find all the show notes find all the show notes over at registrymatters.co leave voicemail at 747-227-4477 email us at registrymatterscast at gmail.com or you can leave comments on the YouTube page too if you'd like to and then of course for as little as a dollar a month please go over and support the podcast and content creators that make the stuff that you're listening to over at patreon.com slash registrymatters Without anything else, I bid you both a fantastic evening, and I hope you have a great weekend. Okay, same to you. Thank you, Andy. Good night. You've been listening to FYP.